You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I was thinking as we scheduled this interview and started into it that I, I had this weird experience with a, a source of mine many years ago. It was a guy named Keith Gumbinger who runs a company called HSH, which does mortgage rates. And when I was reporting at Smart Money Magazine and at Money Magazine, I would talk to Keith at least once a month, maybe twice a month. And years and years later, I met him. And he said, I feel like I'm meeting an old friend for the first time. And I've got Jill Schlesinger in the studio with me. We've never met before, but I feel like I know you and we lead sort of parallel lives. We've both got this journalistic gig-like existence. I, I Well, first of all, thank you very much. And it is an honor. Oh. I actually believe that I saw you at a conference, maybe a fidelity conference, where you were sort of making a quick exit and I was making an entrance or something like that. But it was um, uh, maybe a year and a half or two years ago. And where was it? I can't it was remember. in D.C. D.C. That's where where we like almost crossed paths. And I said <laughs> to them, oh, I really want to meet her. And then you were gone. Oh, it happens on the train, right? Yeah, exactly. Back and forth to D.C. Anyway, for those of you who haven't met Jill, you should meet her. She is an Emmy-nominated business analyst for CBS News. She covers the markets, the economy, investing, anything with a dollar sign on TV. She's also got a new podcast called Better Off. She's got a blog called Jill on Money, and she is the senior CFP board ambassador for the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards because you started as a planner. I, you know what? Before that, you I, it's in my bio, but whatevs. I'm going to just pull it out. Go ahead. My very first job on Wall Street is I was a commodities trader on the floor of the Commodities Exchange. Wow. And um, which is always a fun thing to say because this is her money. And so I was so conjure this up, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Remember the movie Trading Places? Yeah. So that's where I worked. That floor. That is the Commodities Exchange. No, so the commo- it was set in Philly, but they filmed it on the floor of the New York Commodities Exchange, okay. which was in Four World Trade Center. And uh, I was a trader in gold, silver, and copper options. We'll get into that. And um, there were 800 men. That was the male membership of the COMEX. And there were eight female members. Wow. It was like being a Jew in West Virginia. I, I'm actually putting that together and I'm thinking that it may have been worse. I'm thinking numbers wise, there have to be like, there's got to be a minion in West Virginia. <laughs> well, no, I was just, I mean, I was, I was thinking about your numbers and high school classes and there were, I, I don't want to insult the entire state of West Virginia, but I went to high school in Wheeling, West Virginia. How is that possible? Okay, continue. Five 
hundred people in my high school class, yeah. graduating class, right. five Jews. There you go. It's right in there. Right in there. We're, we're, we do, we'll do the numbers quickly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that was it. So I was a commodities um, trader. And um, and how did you decide to become a financial planner? You know, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. My godfather was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I always thought I would be a trader. Most fun. I'm an aging athlete. Uh, I played sports in college. And um, trading was the quintessential sport as a career. They ring the bell in the morning. You play the game. They ring the bell in the afternoon. And guess what? You tally up and you figure out whether you won or lost that day. Very yeah. simple. And um, one day, my dad was in my apartment, had this little studio apartment on the Upper East Side, and he had we had paper rundowns of our profit and loss. So he was looking at my P&L statement. He goes, oh, my God, you had a fantastic July. Phenomenal. And I said, yeah. He goes, what do you mean, yeah? He, I, I said, I, that was good. It was great. And he looked at me and he goes, you know what, honey? There is nothing that you are doing for society in this job. There's nothing you are doing. So you better enjoy it when you're making money because that's as good as it's going to get. He goes, I had a great, I love my job. It's fun. I make money. And unlike all those other guys that are in our town who can't go to their kids' soccer games, I can come to every single one of your soccer and basketball games and I make a good living and I can just close off at night and I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I don't get called by anyone. So if you don't like this, Figure out what else to do. And so it took a few twists and turns. But a couple of years later, what I realized was that I really do like financial, economic data. That's sort of one side of my brain. But I really wanted to apply that to help people. And so financial planning was a nice marriage. And I was living in Providence, Rhode Island at the time. And I joined a teeny tiny little firm there. And I just said, all right, what the heck? Well, and financial journalism, I feel, is very much the same thing. I mean, I I like the reporting. I like the data. I like the numbers. I like all the facts. But I also like the feeling that people, you know, we're doing something good. Yeah, I, and, and I hope so. And and uh, so it was, you know, it's been a... Um it's been a great ride for me. So the best thing I took from my years on the Commodities Exchange, besides the fact that I have great, fantastic stories that we'll do a separate podcast where we're drinking. <laughs> okay. Is there a drinking podcast for her money? Uh, there, There is not. But we have a friend who produces a podcast called Ask a Bartender. So we'll invite her and we'll drink and, and we'll do a podcast. Okay. So when that we do that, I'll tell the real stories. But the best thing that came from my experience on the Commodities Exchange is that I had a futures broker – and his name was Evan, and I set him up on a blind date with my sister, ah. and they are married 27 years later. That's really good. <laughs> so that's my, my biggest thing that happened from the Comex. That, that I is... found a husband for my sister. <laughs> that is excellent. I actually want to talk news today. I mean, okay. there's so many things that are going on in the economy with taxes, with interest rates in Washington. Let's get into it okay. a little bit for people. In a recent blog post you wrote after running into um, Ben Bernanke, the former chair of the Federal Reserve in the green room at CBS this morning, you wrote that when it comes to economic growth, forget job creation, tax cuts, and returning any sector back to its glory days. The real key to boosting economic growth and, more importantly, your living standard is labor productivity. So just break it down. 
First of all, I think it's nice that I said that I ran into Ben Bernanke because I stalked him. Yes. I wasn't on the show that morning. <laughs> I did stalk him. So a lot of times when we think about economic growth, we uh, we get a big scorecard from the Labor Department and we get a big scorecard from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, right? We find out GDP, gross domestic product. What is that? And it's just sort of like, hey, what's the goods and services? How much are we growing by? What's the tally, right? And the concept around what would boost economic growth is something that's really been sticking with me since the financial crisis, because during the financial crisis, we knew that growth was contracting, right? We didn't have growth. We had contraction. The economy was shrinking. Horrible, 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 right? We come out of the financial crisis and there was a really interesting question, which is why is the economy not bouncing back as quickly as we would have liked? Mm -hmm. So you look back to World War II, post-World War II, and you get economic growth averages for all those years, about 3.3%. If you go back maybe since the 60s, it's closer to 28 to 3%. But in this period, this recovery, we're stuck at 2% essentially. So what I was wondering when I ran into stocked Bernanke is like, why we stuck at two? Right. And I said, we're going to be Japan. We're going to be stuck at these terribly slow growth rates. Going to be terrible. He says, look, it's hard to grow an economy if the population that's working is not growing and it's hard to grow an economy when productivity, labor productivity, which is really it's just a measurement of what's the amount of stuff that's produced relative to the hours it takes to produce that stuff. Our productivity is mired at a very low level. Why is that? And that's kind of the quintessential question that economists are asking themselves, because productivity, if you look at it like if we're more productive, we produce goods and services quicker and we're more it's more abundant. Companies make more money. They hire people they give people wages, mm -hmm. increases or things get better and we're more productive and we can take even more leisure time gasp. You know, I know we're Americans. We're not allowed to have leisure time, but we're not seeing that. And so I wanted to go back in that, you know, in a very fun Sunday afternoon and research why is that. And I went in that post to to really find out like what's going on with productivity and productivity has really stagnated. And it, it was starting a little bit before the financial crisis. But if you think about, like, what's the height of productivity, go to back to, say, the mid-90s right. to 2005. Let's look at that decade. And what do you have? You have a technology boom. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. It was so much fun, right? It was like the Wild West. No, it was great. It was totally great. And we know what's so great about it for – I mean, I'm sure that you experience this. But for me, I was in the financial planning business. Every single one of my clients was experiencing something fabulous at work. And it wasn't, I mean, you could have been in a crappy job where the job got more interesting because technology got added onto it or that things were happening that were really exciting everywhere. Right. Their companies were growing and they were making more money. I mean, part of this, I think for a lot of people who are listening, the key that they're going to pull out of this for themselves is wage growth because until productivity starts to climb, it's going to be really hard for anything to happen with wages. Absolutely. And in that time, and especially the late 90s, even the early 2000s, we start we had some nice wage growth there. And then what happened? Things stall out. Right. Wage growth sort of stalls. We've seen, you know, the semiconductor chip. It's really, really fast. It's fast, it's fast, it's fast, but it's not going to get that much faster. And the innovation that propelled that productivity and all those gains 
things that essentially now I know that again this is some winners, some losers in all of this, right? So I'm saying all oh, my clients all did really great. That's because I'm in the Northeast and I didn't have clients who were sitting in manufacturing plants getting laid off. So I'm going to give you that caveat. But when we saw the, say, the, the line of any manufacturing company become incredibly efficient, then you didn't need as many people on the line. Right. And there was nothing else that happened that actually brought more people into that business. And then those wages stagnated. And then the economy kind of churned and was churning on kind of a sugar high, a lot of easy borrowing and lending, a lot of a lot of mortgages being given to people who didn't have need to have them. People saying, I'm a middle class person. I haven't had a wage increase. I'd really like a new car. I think I'll get a second mortgage to do that. All those factors bring to bear a financial crisis, um, lots of big banks doing dopey things. And now we have the aftermath where we're not that productive. Productivity actually was contracting last quarter. Wages are kind of stuck. It's okay. We're 2.8%. It's okay. 2.5%. Okay. Not great. Increases. Increase from a year ago. But it's not great. And no one feels like the economy is on, you know, firing up. We put these episodes up a little bit after we tape them. We're going to put this one up very quickly because we're talking about timely topics. But yesterday, which just to put it into context for everybody, which was two days after the president fired James Comey at the FBI, the Nasdaq and the Dow hit new highs again. Yeah. Well, my dad used to always say the stock market's not the economy and the economy's not the stock market. So I think the easiest way to really remind yourself about the stock market is that it's an indicator that's used in economic growth. We, we do look at it. But at its very base level, a stock is a bet on a company's future earnings. And companies can make money if the economy is only growing by two or two and a quarter percent a year. They can do that with fewer people. They can shed workers. They can keep wages low. Mm-hmm. They can do all those things and really find and they can buy other companies and they can expand their reach and they can go into other markets internationally. That's not the economy. Right. So I would say, you know, as as a former trader, the thing that always makes me nervous is that when people celebrate new highs in the stock market. And it's also probably being a paranoid Jew. So let's go there. No, but it, it makes me nervous, too. I mean, I remember when the stock market right before the crash got up to 14,000 and I was nervous and I talked myself out of being nervous because, you know, it goes up and down and we're in it for the long haul and I didn't pull any money out. But, you know, my stomach was feeling it a little bit. And I remember you know, just telling myself to turn off the financial reports. But, you know, it does. It, it, it gets it gets a little daunting at times like this. You know, um, a wildly informative period of my life was when I was a young trader. Now I'm going to out myself with my uh, age. But anyway, there is this thing called the Internet. I think Al Gore created it. Yes. Um, and you'll figure out how old I am. Uh, in 1987, well, I was they in, know how old I am. There we go. So We're basically the same age. 1987, <laughs> I was a young trader. It was October. And I was standing in the gold options ring. And we did not have cell phones then, 1987. And my beeper went off. And um, it's probably about 8.40 in the morning. So 
Commodities are open. Stocks are not. It's my father's business partner on the American Stock Exchange. And he said, where's your father? I said, what are you talking about, Dennis? He's in Italy with mom. They're on vacation. (laughs) I don't know. He's in Rome. He's in Venice. I don't know where he is. He said, get your father on the phone now. And I'm like, what? And he says, we're about to have a very bad day. So that was the crash of 1987. And I just want to put this in perspective for everyone, because I know it's really awful to think about like what just happened. But in that day, stocks went down by more than 20% in one day. Right, of their value. I remember that day I went to Penn for college, which means I had a lot of friends who came right out of Wharton and went to work on trading floors, went to work on Wall Street. And I, at my desk as an editorial assistant, chit-chat with my friends at lunchtime. And and I just remember. It was scary. It was scary. It was freaking scary. So that informed me. And so in this financial crisis, the big difference was that that event, which has an interesting history and a timeline. I'm sort of a market historian. I love that stuff. But that crisis was different in, in many ways because it didn't feel like the entire United States of America was going down the drain. Whereas in this crisis that we've just experienced, not only was the stock market going crazy, but you got the sense, and again, because I was a a CFP and I was talking to people, that people are doing some wacky stuff out there. And they were levering up, which means you borrow a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And they were borrowing a bunch of money to do all sorts of strange things. Right. Not just home equity loans to refinance credit card debt, to go on vacation, to buy a new car, not to redo the kitchen. Yeah. And it was really, it was very intense. So- um, the fear that I have right now in this current market is not that we're going to go through another financial crisis, because that is not my fear uh, this minute. My fear is that we've gotten a little fat, dumb and happy again. And that happens in market cycles, right? Uh, do you ever have a really bad experience with some particular type of liquor? Like, oh, man, I should never. <laughs> my have, mother I, listens to this show. All right. What's your mom's name? Elaine. Elaine. Uh, Elaine, did you ever have a bad night with tequila? <laughs> And then you never drink tequila again. (laughs) Elaine would occasionally have a bad night with Southern Comfort. Okay. SoCo. Um, So, okay. Elaine, when you have that moment, you say, I'm never going to do that again. And then somehow or other, seven, eight, nine, ten years later, some knucklehead friend of yours says, come on, let's do a shot. And (laughs) you do it. And you're like, why am I doing that again? So that's my fear that right now where we are is uh, I I get nervous. uh, And I'll give you the best example of this. When I got to CBS, right? So this is my second career. CBS, I get there full time in the beginning of 2009. Right after I got there, CBS stock was trading at $3 a share. And I had people who were like panic stricken and crying, telling me how much money they had in CBS stock and what the value used to be versus what it is. And, you know, I'm a big fan of diversification. I know you extol the virtues of diversification. Don't own your company stock. It's crazy. Right. And so now here we are. I started in 2009. We're in 2017. CBS stocks trading 65. And all those people who really almost got crushed like literally almost gave away their entire retirement, many of whom are sort of doing that all over again. Yeah. And so when I start getting questions about, do I really need to do that auto rebalancing? Yeah, you do. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Let's take a breather and remind everybody Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Jill Schlesinger. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So you were a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. You still wear the hat, but you're not actively a financial advisor anymore. So I feel like you're a really good person to ask, how do you find a financial advisor? Oh, that's a great question. There's really like almost no more intimate relationship than you will have. Maybe like, you know, your OBGYN. Right. Right. And, And many people would say to me when they would come to my office, it's actually easier to get a pap smear than to come to your office, Jill, because it's like so exposing. So- you really do have to feel something between you and this person. So I don't want to dismiss that. However, I am a very big cheerleader for the CFP certification, not because every single CFP professional is going to be the best fit for you. But I do believe that sitting for that exam, having that coursework, having the professional and ethical requirements is something that's it's a bar. And yeah. in an industry where there aren't that many bars, that's a really good one. There's also a designation that I absolutely adore. Uh, there are CPAs that have a designation that's called PFS, mm-hmm. Personal Financial Specialist. This is especially good if you want somebody, if you've got very deep tax issues. The CPA PFS almost combines the both of those worlds. So Terrific. You, you get an accountant. With- uh, you may not. They may not do taxes anymore, but you get the mind of the accountant. And do you believe in working with people who have a specific number of years worth of experience? Yeah. Or, no. you, you know what? I'll tell you what. Yes and no. I mean, I think that it's good to have experience. I think it's good to have mentors in a, an organization. But you know what? I was a damn good CFP when I was 35 years old or 30 years old. I really was. I was very smart. I was hardworking and I had resources. I don't love the idea of going to a 22-year-old in a bank branch who's not a CFP, who doesn't do, hasn't done anything yet. I like someone who's part of a team. I think that's good. And I think that it's important that you understand what exactly am I getting in this relationship. In financial services, there is a lot that is shrouded in uncertainty. And because sometimes we as clients feel a little weird about money anyway, we're not inclined to ask these questions. Mm -hmm. So the very good question to ask to start off, uh, would you tell me, Mr. Ms. Advisor, are you held to the fiduciary standard? What does that mean? It means that the best interest of the client must come first before the advisor or the advisor's firm. Someone who is a CFP is held to the fiduciary standard. Uh, there are many people who are very fine financial planners, but they are not held to that standard. And I like that standard. I want to know that I come first. Okay? I, That's I, my deal. I think that sounds like a good way to go. I'm jumping around a little bit. I know I'm going to have to wrap this up soon, and I'm having a good time. But I want to just take a minute to talk about financial considerations for same-sex couples. Okay. So since marriage equality 
became the law of the land. A lot of people have been saying that. Well, now it's all the same, and this is the world in which you live. And so, I want to know if that's indeed true, or if there is specific advice that same-sex couples need if they're married, if they're not. So, when I was a financial planner, and I was like the only out lesbian. In the state of Rhode Island, who was giving financial advice, I had a zillion gay people ask me for advice, and it was a lot harder then. But it was just as hard to give advice to unmarried straight couples because it wasn't as if there were protections in place、right. for them either. So, since marriage equality,、uh, the landscape has shifted. It's gotten a bit. It's in many ways, you know, it's sort of like yeah, no different than straight couple married versus just living together. A couple of exceptions being that it kind of depends where you live, and it can be very geographically based, state based. Correct. So marriage is the law of the land in many places. However, there are some states where you can still essentially be fired for being gay. And that is a risk. That if I were thinking about, you know, Jill, the the great proponent of coming out and doing this, maybe if I lived in a state where that would put my job at risk, I might think long and hard about where I work and how I want to manage that. You know, there had been some legislation that was going into effect potentially that would protect workers, but it did not happen, and it's not happening in this administration. So I think that that's some a consideration. Also, if you worked at a big company, like banks were amazing. Banks were like so far ahead of the rest of the Fortune 500 in terms of providing benefits to gays and their partners.、Mm-hmm. And so there was a time where you worked for a big company and you didn't have to be married, and you got partner benefits. Right, right. Some of those companies are saying, you know what, you want the benefits, you got to get married. So the tide has turned. It's starting to turn. It's not a terrible thing. Here's my shameless plug, also for just everybody needs to do their estate planning, but especially if you're not married, because it stings to have no will. It's just so stupid not to do it. It's 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 a terrible thing. But if you are not married, there is no. There are weird formulas that are based on the state in which you die. That will divvy up your resources, right? And not necessarily where you want those resources to go, but also, and this is—I did not think you were going to the will with that. I actually thought you were going to the healthcare proxy or the durable power of attorney, because when you're single, you've got to take real active steps to make sure that there's another person in place to take care of you. There's no default, right? The safest thing to do is to have at least a will. Your durable power of attorney and your healthcare proxy—that's the safest thing you can do. And even in places where they may not necessarily ask the spouse for the proxy, there need to be the documents in order. And by the way, every time you go into a hospital, because my dad was sick and he died a few years ago, but this always blew my mind. You could have like, I'm like, here I am, I'm the healthcare proxy. You know, every time you walk into that hospital, even if you've been there three weeks ago, you have to re-sign a DNR order, do not resuscitate order. You have to, every single time. So the most important thing is to have these conversations. Absolutely. And if you live in a if you live in a place, you need to make take certain steps. That's fine. But also be aware of like what your family can handle. Because I made my girlfriend do this. So I've got a nice Italian Catholic girlfriend, and I said, "You better put in your estate documents exactly what you want to happen." Because you want a Catholic mass. Like I'm a Jewish girl. I don't know how to organize that. <laughs> Get your sister involved. But like you want that, put it in there. 
You want your ashes scattered in the backyard? You better put that in there yeah. because I don't want to have that conversation with your family. Well, and I've talked about this before, but my dad passed away a few years ago now, too. My mother is remarried to a guy named Bob, who is very, very smart. But one of his smartest innovations is something that he calls a letter of instruction and suggestion. And it's where you tell everybody what you want to happen, as well as what your passwords are and all of the other documentation. And it's not legal, but you should just write one. Right. And give it to the person. Exactly. By the way, don't send it via email. Exactly. Jill Schlesinger, you're a pleasure. Please come back. I would love to. Okay. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? My travels have ended. Yes. So I love getting on the road and I love talking to people when I'm not in New York, but Mm -hmm. getting on a plane lately is just kind of a hassle. So, well, and I will say out of this will be my fourth year working for you. This is the busiest spring you've had since yeah, it's I started. The book. It's the book, which I can hear it in your voice after you get done with a speaking event. Like you sound just like high on life. Like you sound so happy. <laughs> so I know how much you love it. But travel at the end of the day is like really exhausting. It's tiring. It's tough. It's tiring. So welcome back. Thank you. Now you get to enjoy a nice summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Looking forward to that too. All right. What do we have? All right. Our first is from Belinda on Facebook. She writes, how difficult is it to get a new mortgage after experiencing a foreclosure on your previous home? And how long may it take? We had to declare bankruptcy due to our son's illness, and then we lost our home, which was discharged in the bankruptcy. We remained in our home for three years after it, and the sheriff's sale of the home will be taking place this month. We are really hoping that we might be able to obtain a new mortgage next year at this time, but we're unfamiliar with the process. Any insight? I'm really sorry for your loss. My guess is you're looking at more than a year. Generally, though, what we know about credit reporting is that your score is largely based on what's happened in the past 24 months. And so once you get past that two-year window, if you've done everything correctly in terms of paying your bills on time, making sure you're keeping your utilization low, all of that kind of stuff you should start to receive offers of credit again. They may not be at the best interest rates. You will probably have to work a while before you get that. Now, that also assumes that you should be buying another home. I think the more important thing to look at is, does renting make more sense for you at this point as you are just trying to get your finances back on track? And it may be that yes is the answer to that, no is the answer to that. Don't discount it as an option. Sometimes renting for a while allows you to just put more money away in your emergency savings, in your retirement savings, if you've got ground to make up, in your college savings accounts, if you're working on that. And it's a fine thing to do. Our next question is from Danny on Facebook. She says, Jean, what do I do all at once? I'm getting a large settlement from a car accident and an inheritance. Have a party? Have a party. <laughs> That's what I would say. But I think I'm wrong. Now, Danny, what you should really do is nothing. And this, I feel... Always when you come in contact with a large unexpected sum of money, but particularly when that money is coming in the form of an inheritance, because it's really emotional. I don't know who died, and I'm really sorry for your loss. But there's a lot of emotional baggage attached to inheritances, and you don't want to do something rashly that you're going to regret later. 
I would absolutely find a financial advisor. I would absolutely think about your long-term plans for that money and how you can put it to its best use. And I would try not to do anything for a good six months. Yeah, we hope you're okay physically and emotionally. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, car accident too. And now we have an email from Beth on consolidating her debt. She has thirty five thousand in credit card debt that she's paying off slowly. She writes, "I was living off my cards when I was not working. I now have a stable employment. I'm considering、Yay. combining my debt so I can make one or two payments per month. I'm in good standing with all of my creditors. Do you have any thoughts on debt consolidation? And if you're in favor of that course of action, any reputable companies you may have worked with in the past? Thank you for any input." So a couple of things. I would look at transferring your balance on these cards to lower interest rate cards. Sometimes you can get a zero percent balance transfer. That may be a good way to go about it, and that may be a less expensive way to go about it. The point is to just reduce the interest rates. On this debt as much as you possibly can, so that you can make hay in paying them off. Debt consolidation companies are not my favorite. I am a fan of credit counseling firms. It doesn't really sound like you need that, but if you were to work with a credit counseling firm, a not-for-profit credit counselor, they would roll all of your debts into one pile, and you could pay it off at an Average interest rate of about six percent a month, but they ask that you stop using your credit cards, which you may a not want to do and b not need to do. The other thing that you can do is look at taking an unsecured personal loan from a bank or from a credit union. That may be a way to get yourself a less expensive interest rate, or just you know work. Either the snowball or the avalanche. I like the avalanche because I think that it's the cheapest, fastest way out of debt. But the snowball works for some people, where you pay off your highest interest rate first and just work your way on down.、Mm -hmm. But I'm glad you found a job that's working for you.、Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of balance transfer opportunities out there. So take a look at them. Don't forget the fact, though, that there is typically a three percent fee on balance transfers. Maybe a side gig too. Why、yeah. don't you just devote all of your income towards the debt? Right now, yeah, right now, and selling stuff. Oh yeah, selling stuff. My friend Diane, who I run with, and I talk about her sometimes on the show. She's moving from the bigger house in which she raised her kids. Don't look so sad. She's only moving like around the corner. Okay, well, I know she's、um, your running buddy. I, I was down for you for a second. <laughs> um, into a smaller house. They had this massive tag sale, and you would just be amazed at how much stuff you've accumulated. So, sell it. Throw that money against your debt too. Great, thank you everyone for your questions, and we're also doing a survey right now, trying to find out more about you. And it's on jeanchatsy.com on the podcast page, which is also where you can conveniently ask a question. They're right next to each other. The survey takes maybe two minutes, and take as long as you want on the question. Excellent. Have you seen High Fidelity while I've got you here? No, I haven't. Okay, so you have to see High Fidelity. <laughs> John Cusack is one of my favorite actors of all time. If you haven't seen that, if you haven't seen Say Anything, have you seen Say Anything? You're making a face. You are so young.、Ooh. Everybody should see Say Anything. But in the movie High Fidelity, he can't resist a good top five list: top five favorite films, top five memorable breakups, top five things he misses about Laura, who happens to be his girlfriend in the movie. I keep a few top five lists of my own, including the top five questions that I'm asked, like, "Do I need long-term care insurance? How do I find a financial advisor? How much do I need to save?" 
pay off debt or save for tomorrow. And the consistent number one, how do I improve my credit score? Well, we need to address that last one again this week because the answer is shifting, albeit slightly. Now, I've said for a long time, your credit score is a balance sheet. Meaning that it's a snapshot of how your credit looks right at this moment. But this fall, Vantage Score, which is a leading competitor to FICO, will introduce a new formula that approaches your borrowing history as more of a timeline, more of a continuum rather than a freeze frame. It's not used for mortgages, Vantage Score, but it was used eight billion times over the past year in that many lending decisions. And when you pull a score from one of the three major credit bureaus, what you get is a Vantage score. So here's what the change means for you. If your trend line shows that you are paying down debt or even better, paying off monthly balances in full, it's going to help your score. If you've been accumulating credit card debt over the years, i.e. the number is going up and or opening new credit card accounts relatively frequently, that's going to hurt your score. As always, maintaining a high credit limit but using comparatively little of it can boost your score. And a really good goal is to get your utilization under 30%, even better, under 10% of your available credit. So we'll continue to talk about this as they roll out the new formula in the fall. But between this news and rising interest rates, what's clear is that healthy credit habits are more important now than they ever have been before. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Jill Schlesinger for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes and leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join me next week. Gabby Dunn of the podcast Bad With Money will be on the show. Can't wait for that conversation. We'll talk soon.